to us. In Christ's name, amen. This morning we continue in our sermon series through the book of Colossians. The title of our series, as you can see behind me, is The Supremacy of Christ. And we specifically looked at this in detail last week when we looked at verses 15 to 20 in chapter 1 of the book of Colossians. And we saw this, what was likely an early hymn of the church. This would have been something that the early church would have sung together. And what it is, is a a deep uh, concentrate of truth regarding Jesus Christ. And even as you look up there, verses 15 to 20, as you glaze your eyes over there, you see uh, matter-of-fact statements concerning who Christ is. He is the image of the invisible God. He has the prominent position over all creation. He created all things. So it was Jesus himself who created all that we see. He created the visible things and the invisible things. He created the things that are on heaven and the things that are on earth. Further down it says that He is before all things. He is the one in whom all things hold together. And we went over to Hebrews and saw that Jesus is the one that actually holds all things together by the word of His power. Further down in in those verses, He is the head of the church. He is the beginning. His resurrection is the, he, He is the firstborn from the dead and that His resurrection is prominent over all other resurrections. In Him, verse 19, all the fullness of God dwells. And in verse 20, in Him all things will one day be reconciled. So again, within these first five, or in these five verses, there is a deep concentrate of truth regarding who Christ is. Really some of the richest material we have in regard to the truths about Jesus. It's so concentrated and so pure. And He is nothing less than what this first century hymn has claimed Him to be. Like what one early church father said, the Son of God so possesses His own glory that the glory of the Father and the Son is one. He is not therefore inferior in splendor, for the glory is one, nor lower in the Godhead, for the fullness of the Godhead is in Christ. Yet at the end of our text last week in verse 20, in in light of that great beautiful hymn, we saw the need for reconciliation, that word reconciled, within verse 20. And biblically, we understand that the world that we live in is a fallen place. That the world has truly been broken. It's corrupted. Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8 that the earth is actually groaning. The world is groaning. And so we look back at the Garden of Eden and we don't view it as just a a simple act of obedience on the part of Adam and Eve. Whereas we would maybe catch a child with their hand in the cookie jar, that that's kind of how God views Adam and Eve. That is not the case at all. When we think of Adam and Eve and their rebellion, that's exactly what it is. By their disobeying God, it was an act of rebellion. It was truly an act of treason against God. It was not a simple matter of disobedience, but a great act of treason. And this act not only affected Adam and Eve, it not only affected the entire human race, but it actually affects the entire universe. So the result of the fall was not a a simple slap on the wrist for Adam and Eve and a removal of them from the Garden of Eden. It actually ends with a broken cosmos. It ends with a broken world. Like the old statement goes, you, you can choose your sin, but you can't choose the consequences of your sin. And the consequence of the sin of Adam and Eve was not only the removal of the Garden, not only the sin entering into the world, but the world itself would be broken 
And because the world is broken, it needs to be reconciled back to God. Because the world and the people of the world have been separated from God, we need to be reconciled back to God. Even in creation, you look, you look around you and you see evidences of brokenness. You, you see animals preying on each other, don't you? We have illnesses and disease. We have ticks, right? Destruction to the world uh, comes in landslides and earthquakes and tsunamis. And what's important for us to know is that it will not always be that way. It will not always be that way. One day all of these things will be gone as the result of all things being reconciled in Christ, even the world itself. And so the good and beautiful will be maximized and the darkness of evil and the evil things and the groaning creation will all cease and will live forever in the new heavens, in the new earth, in just a beautiful state for all eternity. It's going to be wonderful that there's never going to be any bad news in the new heavens and the new earth. No landslides off the coast of California. No tsunamis in parts of the world. Nothing like that. It's going to be beautiful and perfect and the position where all things are now reconciled to God, back in beautiful harmony with the Creator once again. And this is where we finished our sermon last week in verse 20. Through Him, to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And so the process of reconciliation has begun at the cross, and it will finish at the consummation. But our text this morning continues with the idea of reconciliation. So what Paul does is he goes from all things being reconciled in Christ to God to the the specifics of who it is that is going to be reconciled to God. Look at the first two words of verse 21. And you. And And so the lofty language of all things being reconciled to God gets narrowed down to the Colossians who he's writing to and by extension those of us here who are Christians this morning. That if you are a believer and you trust in Christ that you have been reconciled to God through Christ. And so this morning we're going to jump into our text and Lord willing see several important things all which can be found on the back of your bulletin. One, the parties needing reconciliation. The second, the provider of the reconciliation. Third, the purpose of reconciliation. And then the perseverance of those who have been truly reconciled to God. But first, the parties in need of reconciliation. Look again at verse 21 with me. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Paul's doing here what he does often within his letters when he says... This is what you once were. You even see the word there, fourth word in, and you who once. This is who you once were before you came to Christ. But this is who you are now. And so in verse 21, you see, and you who once were alienated and hostile, doing evil. So this is who you were at one time, Colossians. And again, by extension, us. This is who you were, people of Windsor Christian Fellowship. You were at once at odds with God. There was at one time enmity between you and God. Enmity, like a deep-seated, a deep-rooted antagonism between you and God. And notice the three areas that Paul mentions in verse 21. He lays out three truths concerning every person before they become a Christian. First, we were alienated. Second, we were hostile in our mind. 
Third, we did evil deeds. And those three areas really cover the majority of our lives, doesn't it? Of the non-believer specifically. That their position before God is a position of alienation. So that they're separated, right? They're estranged from God. They're removed from Him. And as a result of being separated from God, they are hostile in their thoughts. So, so being separated and estranged causes them to be hostile in their mind toward God. They do not have a mind toward the things of God. And as a result of all of that, being estranged from God, being hostile to God in their minds, what do they do? They do evil things. They do wicked deeds. And Paul is saying that all of this is true of the Colossians that he is writing to before they got saved. But it's not just true of them before they got saved. It is true of us. That at one time before we came to Christ. We were alienated in terms of our position before God. We were were strangers. We were set apart away from God. We were hostile in our minds toward God. And because we were hostile in our thinking about God. What did we do? We did evil deeds. And I think... You can analyze your life and you can see that. That when you were not a believer, when you did not trust in Christ, that these things were true of you. You may not have always recognized the fact that your position was estranged from God, but you certainly did evil deeds. I think a lot of times, though, many of us have this idea on the other side of that, that many people who do not know Jesus and do not know God and are not saved, that they're kind of more neutral than anything else. That we would never probably say of our unsaved friends and family who who are really nice people. We probably wouldn't say uh, that they're really bad, right? But you think of your friends and family who do not know God. Do you think of them as alienated from God? Estranged from God? Do you think of them as hostile in the way they think about God? Or when they're committing evil and wicked deeds, do do you view that as committing them against God? We've kind of tempered it, haven't we? We say things like, well, they don't know the Lord, but they aren't against God. They'll come to church on special holidays. So they're not, they're not hostile in their minds toward God. But the truth is, according to Paul, they are. And, and I think that you see this very clearly when you start applying the word of God to the lives of the unbelievers. So, so they might not be hostile toward Christianity in a way that is like somebody who is trying to, to kill Christians or to persecute Christians or to do away with God. They might not be hostile in that sense. But as soon as you start applying the word of God to the life of an unbeliever, watch what happens. So if you tell your, your family member or, or, or your friend what God says about their immorality, you'll see hostility. Or what God says about how we should use our finances, or how we raise kids, or how we conduct ourselves in business, or how we speak and use our tongue, or any of those things. And you apply what the Bible says to an unbeliever, and they will strongly disagree. And so you apply anything the Bible says to any area of your life, and you begin to see the hostility. You'll begin to see, in fact, that they truly are far from the Lord. So they might be willing to listen on Christmas about Jesus being born, or on Easter about Jesus rising from the dead, but it becomes evident that they do not love the Lord because they do not obey the commandments of the Lord. And they hate his commandments because it messes with the way that they want to live. But does not Jesus say, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Don't mistake the passivity of an unbeliever to your own Christian beliefs as not hostile. Because the second we apply what you believe from the Bible to them, 
they do get hostile. And why is this? I think we can go back to what Jesus says in John chapter 3. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. When you go into the cockroach motel and you turn on the light and suddenly the ground crawls and the cockroaches go everywhere, why do they do that? Because they hate the light. I'm not comparing people with cockroaches, but it's the same kind of thing. When you start applying the light of the word of God to an unbeliever who does not love God and does not obey the commandments of God, they spread. They do not like the light. Even when it comes to ourselves and our own lives before Christ, we can often think that we were just kind of bad. And then Jesus cleaned us up a little bit. But in this text before us today, in the tenor of the entire scripture, we see a stark contrast before who we were before we trusted in Christ and who we are after we trust in Christ. I like what one preacher said one time, your life can be summed up in two volumes of books. Book one, who you were before Christ saved you. Book two, who you were after Christ saved you. But let me continue to show you some of what the Bible says about those who are without Christ, beginning with the book of Ephesians. Why don't you actually turn to Ephesians? I want to show you a few quick passages there. Ephesians chapter 2. And stay active with me as we look at some of these verses together. Just a couple books over. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Listen to what Paul says. This is, he's doing another one of those things. This is who you once were, and this is who you are now. But the first three verses, this is who you were. So... Chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So, So who were you before Christ entered into your life? You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You're following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, living according to your passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of your body and mind, a child of wrath like the rest of mankind. Suppose lumping all of this in. This is who you once were. You once were a child of wrath with God's wrath oppressing against you. So that's the description of a person, of somebody without Jesus Christ. But look at the same chapter, chapter 2, and look at verse 12. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ. Again, there's an alienation alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So separated from Christ, alienated, strangers, without having hope, without God. Turn over a page to Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of hearts. Futile in their thinking, darkened in understanding, alienated from the life of God, ignorant, heart of heart. Turn back to Colossians, but let me continue reading on some verses as you note takers take them down. Romans chapter 5 verse 10. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by this, by his life. So we are enemies of God. Romans chapter 8 verse 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Before coming to Christ, we could not please God in our flesh. 
Titus chapter 3, verses 3 to 7. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. And so foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to passions and pleasures, malicious and envious, hated by others, and hating other people. What about David's great confession in Psalm 51 after he commits the atrocious sin of adultery with Bathsheba and kills Uriah the Hittite, her husband? He says in Psalm 51 in his confession, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Or the famous verse in Romans 3 verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Or Jeremiah 17 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? These verses, and there are more, do they prove the point to you? That apart from Christ, all of these things are true of us. And if all of these things are true of us, that we're dead in our sins, that we're alienated from God, and that we are unrighteous, that we follow after our sin, all of these things, if all of this is true, and we recognize and acknowledge the truth about God and the truth about us, then there's a huge problem, isn't there? Because if we are totally depraved, and we are sinful in and of ourselves apart from Jesus, then how could it ever be possible for us to stand before a holy God? How's that possible? If we're all of these sinful things, and He's all of these holy things, how do we cross that divide? How does that happen? A holy God cannot entertain the presence of wicked people like us. And so, what do we need? What do we stand in need of? We stand in need of reconciliation. We need to be reconciled to God. And where do we find that? We find it in Christ. One commentator said, In every reference to reconciliation between God and man in the New Testament, it is God who takes the initiative. Reconciliation to God is an explicitly one-sided process. He does virtually everything. All we have to do is respond. So we disrupted that relationship between us and God in the Garden of Eden through our sin. God reconciles us then to himself in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Look at the beginning of verse 21 again. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds... He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. I read an illustration this week of a man and a woman who had separated. And both of them had moved to different areas of the country where they had once lived together. And after some time, the husband returned back to his old hometown that he lived in for some business. And while he was there, he visited the cemetery where his only son was buried. And as he was standing over that grave of his only son, he heard the sound of somebody coming up behind him, and he turned, and who should it be but his former wife? At first, the the immediate impulse was to turn away and to walk away from each other. But because of the love that they had for their dead son, they began to hold hands over the gravesite, and they were reconciled once again. They were brought together because of their mutual love in their son. Reconciled as a result of their son's death. And how are we reconciled to God? Through the death of his son. Through the death of Christ. Reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Making peace, like he says in verse 20, through the blood of his cross. And so all of that wrath 
where it says in Ephesians 2 that we were children of wrath, that that wrath was standing against us. It has been taken away in Jesus' body of flesh by his death. The wrath of God isn't something that we like to talk about. We don't like to think about. But the Bible is stunningly clear that not only is God a God of love, but He is a God of wrath. You cannot have one and not take the other. We take what the Bible says in its fullness about our God. He is not only love, but He is also also a God of wrath. Listen to the wrath of God as defined by J.I. Packer. God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. So God's wrath in the Bible is a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. God's wrath is nothing like your wrath when you get angry. I can think of times in my own life when I have got angry or mad about something. And it is always of a fickle nature. It is always of some sort of a subjective kind of a thing. But God's wrath is not like our own wrath. It is never fickle. It is always just. It is the right and necessary reaction of a morally perfect and holy God to the sin of man. And because He is a holy God, He cannot go light on sin. There is so much in the word of God concerning his wrath. Romans chapter 2 verse 5 says, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Or Ephesians 5, 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Colossians 3, 5 to 6, put to death, therefore, mortify what is earthly in you, the sexual immorality, the impurity, the passion, evil desire, and covetousness which is idolatry, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We often look to John chapter 3 for the, the great and beautiful verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes on Him should not perish but have eternal life. But we cannot forget how John chapter 3 ends. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. The wrath of God remains on the person who does not obey Christ. Only those who believe in the Son of God, Christ, will have eternal life. But those who do not obey Jesus, they will not have life. In fact, God's wrath will remain on them. You ask, how long does the wrath of God remain? It remains forever. Upon those who do not obey Christ. My friends, you must be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. If you are not reconciled to God, you will forever find yourself as one of the damned in hell where the wrath of God will remain on you. Those aren't enjoyable words to say, but they're true. And this is why we we take such, such pains to follow what the Word of God says. Because how easy would it be to say, that's a little too tough. That's a little too harsh. That, that doesn't jive in 2017 where every single person is right and nobody can be wrong on anything. But when we look at the word of God and we see the truths, yes, God is loving and beautiful and holy and sovereign, but that means something. That God cannot tolerate sin. And what is his disposition towards sin? It is wrath. The wrath of God is no trifling matter. 
In his famous sermon, Sinners of the Hands of an Angry God, the most famous pastor theologian in American history, Jonathan Edwards, says the following. The wrath of God burns against them, meaning the unrighteous. Their damnation does not slumber. The pit is prepared. The fire is made ready. The furnace is now hot, ready to receive them. The flames do now rage and glow. The glittering sword is wet and held over them. And the pit hath opened its mouth under them. Edwards goes on. And, and he, he's saying all these things, but he's pleading with the people. And this is one of the sermons that really sparked the great awakening, this great revival that spread initially across New England. And this is what Edwards goes on to say, pleading with people to trust in Christ. O sinner, consider the fearful, fearful danger that you are in. It is a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit full of fire of wrath, that you are held over in the hand of that God whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much against you as against many of the damned in hell. You hang, it's like a, a, a slender thread, like a spider's web. You hang by a slender thread with flames of divine wrath flashing about it and ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder. And you have no interest in any mediator, Christ, and nothing to lay hold of to save yourself, nothing to keep off the flames of wrath, nothing of your own, nothing that you have ever done, nothing that you can do to induce God to spare you one moment. For everyone in this room, professing Christian or not, you, have you been reconciled to God? If not, Jesus says, the wrath of God remains on you. And it is only in the person and work of Jesus that God's wrath against you can be satisfied. So we sing the song, in Christ alone, in Christ alone my hope is found. And one of the lines in that is, when on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And it was for you, Christian. But if you are outside of Christ, the wrath remains. The result of the cross is not only that your sins have been forgiven in Jesus and the wrath of God being satisfied, but in Jesus are found the beautiful robes of righteousness. He takes off our filthy rags, puts his own robes of righteousness that he has attained, and he freely gives them to us. Sinful rags traded for robes of righteousness. Now able, as a result of the work of Christ, to stand before a holy God. So having told us the parties that are in need of reconciliation, we must be reconciled to God. He has told us also, Paul has told us where the reconciliation is found, it's found in Christ. And now Paul moves on to the purpose of reconciliation. So, so what is the practical meaning of reconciliation? What does that mean for us in our lives? So if I'm reconciled to God, whose wrath once stood against me, but I am reconciled to him by Christ, then what practical meaning does that have in my life right now? The second half of verse 22. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So, so we're unable to, to be holy and blameless and above reproach before God without this reconciliation. It is totally impossible. So essentially what's being said is this. All of you people who were at one time alienated and estranged from God, all of you people who were hostile in your thinking, all of you people who once did all of these wicked deeds, Jesus has done something. What has He done? By His death, He is now able to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before God. I like what one commentator said, Paul at the same time reminds us that this new status is not an end in itself, but has a further goal in view, that we who are already holy in status now should become holy in reality. That that's going to be the reality of, you, of, of, you, of your own existence one day, Christian. That we will be truly and blameless and above reproach. 
not as a result of anything we have done, but as a result of what Christ has done for us, now able to stand before a holy God. It's a good possibility here that Paul is referring to the judgment that we will all stand before God together in. And in order for us to be able to stand in that judgment, we must be reconciled and made holy and blameless and above reproach. And as a result of that great reconciliation, what is Christ doing in you now? He's working in you by His Spirit to make you holy, sanctifying you, making you blameless. And this is the work of God in all of our lives. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. And there he's doing it again. This is who you were. Hey, hey, you Corinthians that I'm writing this to, you who are sitting under the, the voice of my letter that once practiced immorality, that once were homosexuals, that once were greedy and adulterers and all of these things, what has Christ done for you? He has washed you. He has sanctified you, justifying you in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. 2 Peter 3.14, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish. Titus 2.14, who gave himself, Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possessions who are zealous for good works. 1 Thessalonians 4.7, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Ephesians 5.27, Christ loved the church, he gives himself for her, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Ephesians 1.4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And so that's the goal. That the Christian life is the pursuit of a holy life. That God is doing the work of making us holy and blameless so that we can be above reproach before Him. And let me ask you, Christian, do you see evidence in your life of God making you holy? Of God pressing out those wrinkles and cleaning off those spots? As you analyze your own soul this morning, if you cannot detect spiritual growth in your soul, then can there truly be spiritual life? Are you being washed? Are you being purified? Are you zealous for good works? As Paul says, you were chosen before the foundation of the world. For what? To be holy and to be blameless. Are you living in light of that call? Seeking holiness now. Knowing that one day you are going to be presented before God and judged by Him. Finally, look with me at verse 23. The perseverance of the one who has truly been reconciled. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So there's really two sides of this, isn't there? You have a a positive aspect and a negative aspect. Positively, continue in the faith. Be established and firm. But then on the negative side, do not shift. Don't be moved. Keep your footing. And what does Paul not want us to shift from? He doesn't want us to shift away from the hope that we have in the gospel. What Paul is calling these Colossians to, who who have been reconciled to God through Christ, is to persevere, 
to, to continue in the faith. He's not, he's not doubting that they will persevere. He's calling them to persevere. And this is something that we so often need to be reminded of. If you're anything like me, you have days, maybe many days in a row, where you feel tossed around. That stable and steadfast is the last thing that you feel like. But Paul is calling us to continue in the faith by being stable and steadfast and not shifting away from the hope of the gospel. Are you shifting from your hope in the gospel? Has your your hope shifted from the gospel into something else, into some other area? Is your hope in your possessions or in your bank account? Is your hope in another person? Or does your hope remain in the only thing that can offer a foundation that is immovable, the hope in the gospel? The party is in need of reconciliation. We need to be reconciled to God. This is the need of every man and woman who are without Christ. The provider of the reconciliation is Jesus, who in his body of flesh, he has reconciled us to God, making peace between us and God by the blood of the cross. The purpose of reconciliation, reconciled to God now, but in the future having the opportunity to stand before him above reproach as a result of the work of Christ. And then the perseverance of being reconciled, that we would continue even now in the faith, established and stable and not shifting from the hope that we have in the gospel. And so what you have in summary. Is from alienation. To reconciliation. From being hostile. To being holy. From doing evil deeds. To now being above reproach. One day before him. We have so much to thank, be thankful for. Specifically. In the reconciliation. That we have been given in Christ. Let's pray. I thank you, Lord, for these verses and um, the truth that it contains and how we were once estranged from you. And Jesus, we thank you for taking on flesh and coming to this earth and in your body of flesh, reconciling us to God, knowing that we could never have stood before him. Lord, if any are here who do not know you and who are still alienated, may you by your spirit break their hard hearts. Give them a heart of flesh. Give them eyes to see the truth of Christ, that we need reconciliation through him alone. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We stand with me as we sing our final song together.